recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. All right, welcome to episode four of the PR and Law Podcast. I can't believe we've already made it to episode four. Uh, I'm your co-host, Cam McMurchy, alongside you and Christy. Hello, Cam. How are you? Not bad. I am a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications Newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroonllp.law. So before we get underway, we've got lots of cool stuff to talk about today, uh, actually. So um, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. Uh, we do not have a huge marketing budget, so uh, passing along word helps us a lot. Leaving reviews, that sort of thing is very helpful. Please do so um, if you enjoy it. And you can also follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at PR Law Podcast. So facebook.com slash PR Law Podcast, twitter.com slash PR Law Podcast, etc., etc., etc. And you can also support us on Patreon. That would mean a lot. You can go to our show website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. Thank you very much. And we can also take your questions. We definitely want to take questions from listeners uh, on PR and legal issues. And so you just have to tag us on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. And with that out of the way, what is going on, Ewan? Well, Cam, just uh, you know, another day in quarantine paradise here. I was getting ready to prep for the show when I uh, discovered my three-year-old who had found my wife's lipstick and proceeded to smear it all over her face, all over her clothes, all over the bathroom. Um, I'm sure there's probably some parents out there listening who are also enjoying some happy quarantine times. Um, so I say hello <laughs> to them and I uh, hope everybody's well. I doubt that's the first time she's going to do that either, you. And she's three. She's got a lot of time left. You're, you're probably right. All right, let's get in. We don't want to spend too much time on COVID-19, but we do want to give you a quick update. All right, so some of the latest figures. We're up to 3.44 million cases now around the world. 1.1 million people have recovered from COVID-19, and there have been 244,000 deaths. And uh, the U.S. has the most. At 66,000 people have already passed away. Uh, from COVID-19. And here in Hong Kong, actually, we're, we're in great shape uh, at the moment. We had five days last week where we had zero new cases. On Friday, we had two new cases. And that's because the Hong Kong government arranged some flights back from Pakistan uh, to get some Hong Kong uh, citizens out of that country. And there were two people who, upon landing and being tested, had COVID-19. Um, but everyone on that flight was taken to a, a, you know, a, a quarantine center uh, for 14 days. And then we had zero cases uh, Saturday and zero cases on Sunday. And we've had 14 consecutive days of no new transmission inside Hong Kong. So no spreading, a new case of it being spreaded within Hong Kong. Um, so it's uh, it's been quite uh, positive here. And we've also had, uh, 
you know, every, a lot of people have been back to work and we have had a restriction of four people to a table at restaurants. Um, and there's now talk of that being increased to eight people being allowed to sit together closely um, at a restaurant just because, you know, we're at a, at a point now where there's, you know, no, no new transmissions for, for two weeks. Um, Singapore going in the other direction, 18,000 cases there now, 17 deaths, 90% of those have been in dorms. Uh, they've got sort of uh, a public housing where a lot of the, the migrant uh, workers live in Singapore, and it has really ripped through that area badly. And so they're looking at uh, a work from home for for quite some time. And you, and you mentioned you're still under quarantine there. I mean, how are you holding up? How's everybody else holding up just in light of this sort of carrying on? Well, you know, we're surviving as 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 best we can. Um, you know, like a lot of families here in Canada, um, we've been facing a lot of challenges in terms of uh, you know just just trying to be productive, get work done while looking after children and uh, and staying inside. I mean, the good news is that they're they're slowly but surely starting to reopen the economy and and um, loosen some of the restrictions in Ontario. As of tomorrow, actually, certain businesses and workplaces will be allowed to reopen. I mean, they're predominantly outdoor operations, so things like garden centers and landscaping, construction projects, that kind of stuff. But at least it's a start, um, which is which is quite promising um, in terms of, you know, sort of unemployment numbers here. I mean, those numbers continue to increase. We're about a million uh, Canadians that have applied for unemployment benefits. In the U.S., as I understand, there's another 3.8 million Americans that have applied for unemployment benefits, which puts the total over 30 million Americans in uh, just six weeks now. And yet the stock market is hitting high after high. I cannot believe this. I actually, I mean, you know me, I like to get into the stock market and, and buy and sell. But I mean, I, I got out of the market probably 10, 12 days ago, thinking it was way too high at that point. I mean, we had we had done well, uh, you know, from the 27% the low that it was at. Uh, but I, it just continues to march upwards. I know I had a bit of, bit of a dip on Friday, but um, I think we're due for a huge correction in the stock market because it's not reflecting uh, the economy in any realistic fashion. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure that a lot of people hope that you're right. Yeah, well, I mean, I hope I'm right too because <laughs> I don't own any stocks now. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go bargain hunting. All right, um, you and, I mean, how are people holding up? Because, I, I mean, I know I sort of asked that uh, a little bit before, but like I am hearing stories now of, of you know challenges if you're quarantined in a, in a group together i mean i know you're there with with your your wife and your daughter and i know you know in china there was a huge spike of divorces after after the uh the lockdown um i mean I, I, are there sort of are people getting a little bit frustrated now a little bit maybe some cabin fever uh you know because it, it is it is tough i mean we haven't had to do that here we haven't had the same kind of a lockdown in hong kong we haven't been you know, people can stay home, but it's also been fine going out because everyone wears a mask. But I mean, how, how, how's the psyche of people in, in Canada and in Toronto? Yeah, I mean, Mother Nature is starting to play a part in this, right? The weather's getting nice. You know, it's a beautiful sunny day here. We're, we're sort of hitting high teens. We're going to be hitting low 20s soon. So that that sort of adds an additional layer of complication because people are, are, you know, it's one thing to sort of stay home and inside when the weather's cold and you don't particularly want to go outside. It's something else entirely when you're looking at a, a beautiful sunny day and you just want to get out and sit in a park or go for a walk, uh, visit family members and friends. So yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen more people out 
that probably shouldn't be. And I think that that's going to continue to, to increase in terms of numbers because we are sort of hitting that peak cabin fever phase. And uh, people, people want to go outside, Cam. They want to go out. Yeah, and that's understandable. It's the same here. I mean, today we hit 26 degrees, 27 degrees. I mean, the beaches were full. Uh, there was a, a picture on, on the South China Morning Post being circulated just about how many people were out um, at the beach. Uh, but I mean, we're in a, in a slightly different situation, having had no new transmissions for, for two weeks. And I do think, you know, the, the, the most difficult decision to me that a government has to make is when to reopen the economy because and how to do that because there is the risk of a second wave and we've seen Singapore suffer from that. We suffered from that in Hong Kong a little bit. You know, we were back to work and then a week later we were off again because it just takes, you know, one or two people, you know, arriving from somewhere or somebody who's asymptomatic and, you know, people are now allowed to go out and, you know, go to the, go wherever. Uh, and that can spread again quickly, and then we're we're back to back to the beginning, and that's obviously very dangerous, and that's where you see the real damage to the economy happening. Um, so it's a it's a risky move to do it. I know that they have to do it, and I know we have to get the economy going, um, but at the same time, hopefully, they've done as much homework on it as they can. Yeah, and that stuff's kind of further complicated in 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 countries like Canada and the United States, right? Where you have multiple provinces or multiple states, and you know you can be sitting in your respective province or state, and then where you're sort of under strict guidelines and restrictions about going outside, and then you sort of look to a neighboring province or neighboring state and say, well, you know, they're allowed to go to the beach or they're allowed to gather, go back to restaurants. So why can't we? And what's wrong with us? And what's wrong with with, with our sort of local government? Maybe we should be out protesting and. and and that really can kind of complicate the the landscape. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, while we're speaking of Canada, uh, there was another big, big news story in Canada from uh, just over a week ago. And we touched on it at the end of the show uh, last week. Uh, and that was a, a, a large-scale mass shooting in Canada. It's not something that's common. It's not the first time it's happened in Canada. But it's not as common as the United States, for example. Um, and I know that you had something to raise on that issue, Ewan. Yeah, I mean, uh, interestingly, we're sort of talking about a ban on assault-style weapons, right? I mean, that's really the, the crux of, of what the government has, has looked to do. And we're not just talking about one or two different types of weapons. The, we're actually talking about a full ban on 1,500 makes and models of military grade assault style weapons i was surprised um, that these were legal before the shooting yeah yes you're absolutely you're absolutely right why? you're absolutely why right why why were they i i i have i mean i i don't know i'm i'm far from an expert on on gun legislation or uh, firearms i've never held a gun i've never shot a gun i know very little about guns um i think you know in light of i i, I know that canadians love to kind of um look down their nose a little bit at the united states especially on cases like like shootings and so that's why i'm kind of surprised that, that these weapons were were a lot not allowed but i mean they were not illegal in canada at the time of the shooting because that's that seems like a quite a big oversight to me um but it is it is positive that that that, that there are gun reforms you know being introduced yeah well and you know they were they mentioned specific firearms that people in canada can can relate to so you know semi-automatic firearms with large magazines of ammunition um kind of designed and configured for rapid fire so these includes things guns like the ar-15 
the uh, the Roger Mini 14, which was the rifle that was used in the Ecole Polytechnique massacre in, in Montreal in 1989, um, the CSA VZ58, which was um, carried by the gunman in the Quebec mosque shooting in 2017. So, you know, the, the government is very specifically targeting the kinds of weapons that have been used in um, mass shootings as we've seen them in, in, in Canada in the past. And, you know, and, and look, the Angus Reid, uh, the Angus Reid Institute did a, a poll recently. And, you know, the numbers support the government's position on this. Nearly four in five Canadians, so, you know, roughly 80 percent support a complete prohibition on civilian possession of weapons used, you know, the type that were used in the Nova Scotia mass shooting last month. So, you know, the government definitely has the support. There's obviously those who are in, in, in opposition. And, you know, a lot of critics are saying that the ban's only going to hurt the law-abiding gun owners. It doesn't any, do anything to protect or target smugglers or those who are, are, are legally modifying firearms. And there's certainly some some truth to that. So it'll be interesting to see where the government goes from here in addressing some of those those other issues. Yeah, I've always kind of looked at this uh, um, in the U.S., the way Canadians look at fighting in ice hockey. Because, like, in the United States, obviously, there is a there's a large number of people who, you know, feel very strongly about the right to bear arms, regardless of the potential damage they could cause and the argument being made that you know guns don't kill people people kill people okay i i do have some time for that argument but i think it's deeper than that because it's so cultural it goes so much to the identity of what it means to be american or freedom slash liberty slash you know these various these various things and when it's that deep into identity you know it's it, obviously it's very hard to to make some change and i've looked at fighting that way you know in in hockey only because it, it is kind of barbaric it is not necessary it's dangerous we've seen players commit suicide as a result of, of the brain damage they've suffered in, in these roles. And, um, but yet it too, it seems to be part of Canada's cultural fabric. There's a lot of people who insist that this is a, a necessary part of the game. And I think we've kind of missed, uh, we're too close to it in that way. And we're too involved, um, to, to sort of see the bigger picture the way I, I, I feel that, that, that many Americans are who, who definitely want access to, you know, really deadly firearms, um, so anyway, yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting that Canada acted so quickly, and I know you know it's not the first country to do that. Australia also uh, a decade or so, or maybe a bit longer, you know, had a, had a had a huge uh, a mass shooting that resulted many people dead, and they did the same thing. Uh, they took action quickly, um, so so it's good to see. Yeah, I think you know you you raise an interesting point in terms of the the, the cultural angle. I mean, one of the things that Trudeau, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau said. Uh, was that Canadians, this was a quote, Canadians deserve more than thoughts and prayers. And I thought that that, that choice of language was clearly very specific and clearly was alluding to the language we frequently see in the United States following a mass shooting, that our thoughts and prayers are, are with the victims and their families, and that that really just isn't good enough. It was never good enough to begin with, and it's certainly not good enough now. I also thought it was interesting that the the National Rifle Association very, very promptly uh, put out a tweet following um, following the, the, the government's move. Uh, and and I, I wanted to read read out the quote because I think the the language it's it really goes to what you're talking about, Cam, that sort of cultural distinction in an approach to gun culture that we see in Canada versus the United States. So this is this is what the tweet from the NRA said. It said, today is one of those days 
where every American should be proud of our citizenship and freedoms. But sadly, some aren't. When gun-hating politicians try to ban freedom in America, we remind them of our Second Amendment. In other countries, gun ownership is decided by the government. End quote. And then underneath that quote, there are two photographs, and you know we'll 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 put a link in our in our um, show notes so so people can look at the tweet. But there's a photo of a Canadian flag on one side, and an American flag on the other side. And underneath the Canadian flag, the text reads, "Quote: Deranged criminal breaks every law, and Canada's gun-hating prime minister." responds by banning commonly owned semi-automatic rifles, end quote. And then underneath the American flag, the quote says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. So, I, I mean, as you can imagine, the feedback and and replies to this tweet were fascinating on every side of the debate. Also, every side of the debate from Canada and the United States. But, you know, I think that that quote really speaks to the distinction, the cultural distinction in our respective approaches to 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 gun culture uh, in Canada versus the United States. Yeah, we talk about PR and messaging and the power of words. And um, you mentioned in there a quote, ban freedom in America. Uh, and so, like, clearly the NRA is linking a gun ownership with the concept of freedom and you know it, for, for their purposes that's a really smart thing to do um, and you know I, I don't want to go too deep into into the gun issue because I mean it, we can go around and around in circles except to say I, I do understand how some people would like to own some sort of firearm for some purpose if they are hunters or if they're sportsmen even or you know something like that even maybe for for self-defense however there has to be some sort of um, guideline or restriction on who can buy and when and who can own. I mean, we have these restrictions for almost everything else that can be deadly, such as automobile ownership. You, you have to be a certain age, you have to get a license, and then, and then you have to buy car insurance and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a difficult sell telling Americans they have to give up all of their weapons. I, I don't see that day coming anytime soon. But I also don't understand why, why responsible gun owners in the United States don't speak up a little bit more about that because you know they're the ones that are threatened the most if you're a responsible gun owner then sure you're going to be upset when you know people are coming out against guns and you're responsible and you feel targeted and i think that is a way to sort of i think it does more harm than good actually but i think those people really should be standing up and saying okay you know we own we own guns we, we, we manage them in a safe way. We use them for a specific purpose. And let's kind of come to some agreement here over, over and, and make, it, make a distinction between these two different kinds of gun ownership. Yeah, I, I, completely, I completely agree with you. Well, well said, actually. All right. Um, we are going to get into our law and PR sections coming up. We've got a lot of really, really cool things to talk about. Uh, so we'll be right back on the other side. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, Ewan, it is not often we get to talk about Victoria's Secret on this show, but I understand we're going to touch on it today, so go for it. Yeah, so as a sort of an introduction, I wanted to talk about 
the force majeure clause. It's called or greater force. Okay, let's describe that. Seen contracts. What does force majeure mean? Yeah. Well, what it means, it's it's a clause that you'll typically see in an agreement to account for circumstances that are beyond the control of either party, such as acts of God. So you probably heard this term, acts of God, in in the context of a contract. Um, right. So you so, have a force majeure clause to account for these circumstances beyond the control of either party right. that would make the performance of the contract impossible. So let's give an example. Like if you're buying uh, house insurance, maybe you're insured against a fire or an earthquake, but not against force majeure, right? Which would be an act of God, something so outside of uh, expectations that the insurer would basically vindicate themselves or, or remove any responsibility from themselves. Would that be, would that be correct? You got it. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, that's one of the most common applications you'll see is in an insurance context, you know, a, a tornado comes and blows your house down. Well, you didn't account for that in your insurance policy. It'll, you know, it'll, it'll protect you if you've got a hole in your roof or if a pipe bursts, but you know, there's nothing in the, in, in the policy that protects you from a, a tornado coming and blowing your house down an act of God. Right. Absolutely. And, and an interesting point of this actually is, um, uh, you know, Wimbledon, the, the tennis tournament in, in the UK every year, they had been buying pandemic insurance for decades and actually, and they obviously Wimbledon was canceled this year and they got their, their payout from their insurance company, which was much more than they had put into that all these years. But that's one of the only large organizations that had that kind of insurance. And that's why the economy is suffering so much actually right now is just, this is an act of God or considered an act of God, force majeure, a, a pandemic that is, you know, basically for a while had closed the global economy. Um, anyway, carry on, Ewan. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Well, so, you know, if you want to rely on, and to your point, if you want to rely on that particular clause, then, you know, you sort of have to show two things. And if you're, if we're talking about a COVID-19 climate and why not, because that's really the application that we're seeing, um, of the clause right now, you, you need, you need to be able to demonstrate that the performance of that contract based on the terms as they were drafted is impossible. <clears throat> you would also have to show that, you know, the outbreak of COVID-19 and its consequences were beyond the reasonable foresight and, you know, skill of the parties at the time that they entered into the agreement. So that that's sort of the, the two-part test that you have to, to demonstrate to get there. Now, not every contract includes a force majeure clause. So, I mean, enforcement majeure is really a contractual tool. So if you don't have that type of language in agreement, then really what you can what you have to rely on is what we call frustration of contract and again different jurisdictions apply this differently so i'm sort of speaking more to a canadian context but in the principle of common law principle of frustration is a common law principle meaning if you live in a country that um, observes the common law jurisprudence which is a lot of them um, then frustration of contract um, could could very could very easily apply. Okay, so you and you're you're, you're losing me on all the legalese. Let's go to the Victoria's Secret case, <laughs> and then and then we'll apply this. So we've got an example to compare it to. Okay, good 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 idea. <laughs> so, Victoria's Secret. So the buyout firm Sycamore Partners, and we'll we'll link. There's a great story in the New York Times we can link to in uh, our show notes that um, that that talks about this this case. Really, really interesting case. So the buyout firm Sycamore Partners, it's currently trying to back out of its 525 million dollar deal uh, to buy majority of Victoria's Secret from the the company L Brands. So you know the party signed 
the agreement back on February 20th. Okay, so this was one day after the stock market indexes hit, hit their all-time high. Um, of course, we now know that only only days later, the the markets effectively crashed on the news of the the Corona uh, virus outbreak. So by mid March. Uh, Victoria's Secret, they'd closed all of its stores and, and, and its online operation. So the day that Sycamore announced the deal to purchase Victoria's Secret, the stock was trading at $23 a share. By March 20th, so I mean literally only a month later, shares were trading for less than 10 bucks. So obviously... They weren't particularly happy about that idea. So in, in April, had already April 13th, been uh, Peter right. Morrow, who's uh, the managing director of Sycamore, it, it sort of broached the idea of adjusting the purchase price as After a result of the, uh, the drop in the value for the COVID outbreak. Right. So, you know, they wanted, they wanted um, L Brands to effectively cut them a deal saying, well, you know, your, your company's not worth nearly as much as what it was when we, when we crafted the deal. So we, we want out. Um, of course, L Brands said, no way. Um, a deal is a deal and, and you're stuck. So, you know, Sycamore terminated the agreement and they filed a suit alleging that L Brands had, had, had breached the agreement. So that's sort of the, the jumping off point. Now, initially, it sort of looked like Sycamore had a pretty good case, right? And based on principles of force majeure, frustration of contract, um, in, in the U.S., they, they generally use the language material adverse change. But we're sort of talking about the same thing. But, you know, there was an act of God and, you know, Sycamore couldn't possibly have anticipated that this was going to happen. And therefore, they should be able to, to get out of the agreement. But what's crazy about this deal is that some very, very sharp and clever lawyers uh, working for, for L Brands, they carved out specific exceptions to those acts of God, including a pandemic. And, you know, so in other words, even in the instance of a pandemic, they structured the deal so that Sycamore wouldn't be able to back out of it, Cam. So... Uh, did Sycamore just skip over that, not notice it? I mean, when they asked L Brands to renegotiate the price, they should have been aware of that clause, yes? Well, I mean, you would you would think so. Um, but again, you know, what's sort of interesting about these types of clauses is that, I mean, again, COVID is so unprecedented that in most contractual arrangements, particularly, you know, a, a deal such as this one, the likelihood of, of of an act of God is so incredibly remote that it would probably just be the sort of standard boilerplate language um, that you would quickly review and you wouldn't think twice about. And I suspect what happened here is that L Brand's legal team was probably looking at what was going on in China, and they probably thought that however remote the possibility, if there was a possibility of COVID making its way to North America and the United States, that there could be an issue with the deal. There could be an issue with the value of the company. And they very, very cleverly stuck it in. So I, I, I suspect that Sycamore, they would have reviewed it. I mean, they have they, they would have had an exceptional legal team, much like, like L Brands. Um, it probably just wasn't something specific enough that they would have turned their mind to. Yeah, that's really interesting because as you were explaining this, I was thinking, because actually I'm not that familiar with this story in advance. So as you were walking me through it, I was I was 
thinking about it. And like at first I thought, you know, Sycamore has a case here, clearly. I mean, the, the environment has changed dramatically from February 20th when they signed this deal. But but when you say that, that Elbrands had included specifically a pandemic into the contract, that this is, seems like a slam dunk to me then. And I am surprised that Sycamore didn't say anything at the time, uh, you know, in light of where we were at, because February 20th is not is not that early. I mean, we knew about COVID in early January and, you know, all through sort of the end of January is quite big news internationally. And um, I mean, by then it wasn't just, I mean, you mentioned a small chance that it might come. I mean, by then it had, I believe it was even in Italy by then. So, I mean, and the other thing on that, Ewan, when I, I worked at the at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange previously, and even when we signed very simple contracts as something, you know, like a contract with a social media um, monitoring service or provider or a news monitoring provider. We had the the boilerplate, the the sort of traditional clauses all reviewed line by line by our in-house legal team. And I mean, the risks of these things were incredibly low. They were they were not super lucrative contracts or anything like that. And so, I mean, if, if we're doing that on, on very low value, low risk items, I'm very surprised that Sycamore didn't do that in light of a deal of this size and with a pandemic already in the news. I mean, this just seems like a huge oversight to me. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's difficult to know what was going on internally when they were reviewing the deal. Um, that 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 minutia to sort of dive into would be fascinating if we had, if if we had access to it. At least as a lawyer, it'd be be something I'd be fascinated to sort of get a get a better a better sense of. But you know what what Sycamore is now trying to do? They're not even effectively trying to get out of the agreement on that basis. So they've had to sort of switch gears, and now what they're trying to argue is they're trying to argue that L Brands, they they failed to run Victoria's Secret in a matter consistent with past practices. So that's the position they're taking. They're saying, you know, specifically, they they furloughed most of our employees, they failed to pay rent and, you know, didn't replenish out of fashion merchandise, all of which, you know, they allege is at odds sort of with their past behavior. And of course, in response, Victoria's Secret is arguing, well, yeah, because the COVID-19 circumstances are unprecedented. We, we've never faced anything like this and we're doing the best we can. So, you know, I very, very, I, I struggle to see how a court is going to look at what Victoria's, Secrets, uh, Victoria's Secret has done under the circumstances, much like any number of businesses under the circumstances, and take the position that, well, really, you know, your behavior was inconsistent with past practices, um, and, you know, you've clearly, you should be held liable for that. I mean, nobody could have predicted this, and and businesses really are trying to do the best that they can under the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned things like furlough employees and things like that. I mean, that to me is very clear. But the one thing you mentioned about not paying rent, I, would there be any grounds on that? Because, I mean, obviously there are some business owners and some private individuals or families that are choosing not not to pay rent or can't pay rent, you know, as a result of the damage to the economy. But I mean, for Victoria's Secret to not, I, I mean, I assume they have enough money to pay rent that they weren't, you know, that far in the red. Um, that seems odd to me. I guess that would, if I was Sycamore, that might be one of the things that I would focus on. But I don't know if that carries much legal weight or not. Well, and frankly, I, I I don't know either. I don't know what what sort of weight a, a court would give to that. It's a it's certainly a, 
a valid a valid question and something that I, I suspect you're probably right that Sycamore will lean on quite heavily. But I, I mean, again, at the end of the day, will that be sufficient? Uh, I, I don't know. I think that might be a bit of a stretch. OK, so if people have, you know, made contracts and I am thinking about um, rent uh, primarily, I, there's a movement right now in the U.S. to just completely not pay rent until this is over. I think it's called zero rent or something like that. I'm seeing more, more of it uh, being shared. And uh, Annie Lowry, who's sort of um, you know one of the top economics reporters in the U.S., has written in the Atlantic about the movement as well. Um, I'll share that. I mean, what sort of position are individuals in now? I mean, this 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 dispute that you're talking about between L Brands and Sycamore is is, is a corporate. Um, situation, a corporate dispute. But what about individuals who have made, who have contracts with their credit card uh, company or their, their landlord or, you know, things like that. Is there any out for them? Is there anything they can pursue? Well, there, there, there could be. And I mean, like most contracts, you really have to look at the specific language of the agreement. So it's really, really difficult to sort of apply a, a sort of a broad, a broad catch all in terms of, you know, in this particular area, be it rent, everybody would have an entitlement or an opportunity to sort of get out of the agreement here or not get out of it there. It really, really depends on the, the specific language that we're, we're dealing with. But, you know, at the same time, what we've seen from most governments and most jurisdictions is, you know, they've really, they haven't taken the renter into consideration, right? I mean, we've seen relief for landlords in, in Canada included. There have been programs for, for you know, commercial, commercial rent for the landlords. So they're getting some abatement. They're getting um, some, some relief. But we haven't really seen much for for the tenants themselves and you know as we know these are the people who are the most marginalized um, members in this they're the ones who are, are are really facing the the greatest hardship so I think what we we still need to see from a lot of jurisdictions are, are more policies that are going to help and more relief that are going to help the the tenants the tenants themselves yeah, I think we could do a whole show just on this subject, because especially when you're looking at different jurisdictions in the world, I mean, different different governments are tackling this a different way. But this is the first time that I've seen, at least in the United States, you know, calls for just sending out checks to everybody, just getting money in people's hands, you know, to try and stave off an even bigger economic collapse without even, you know, a thing like, um, you know, a means test. Because once you start doing a means test, you know, it's a lot of paperwork and it's a lot to go through and and, you know, is it, it does it really give you the a, a clear picture of what's going on or if somebody needs the money or not? And then even if you're going to send people, you know, a thousand dollars each, yes, that will end up also going to somebody like Bill Gates. Um, but, you know, just encourage wealthier people to donate that money somewhere, but that it's critical to get cash into people's hands. And this used to be sort of a, a very left-wing kind of uh, socialist idea, but there's a there's a, a large movement calling for this kind of, uh, uh, not a bailout, but, but I guess financial assistance to people in the United States. Just give them money so they can put it into the economy. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about that here in Canada too, a universal sort of basic income. And and look, here here's the thing. I mean, the, the idea that this money is just going to be uh, thrown around. I mean, everybody, every, everyone who works, at least in, in Canada, inevitably has to file a tax return. And, you know, if you went on to make 
a certain threshold of income, then much of this this you know this money will be recaptured um, in taxes by the government at some point anyway. So, you know, I, I, I take the point. Like the, the most important thing is get the money into the hands of those that need it most now and and before they're you know they're out on the street before they're unable to put food on the table i mean we we've got to be able to take care of the most marginalized members of society in situations like this this is fraught with danger for governments too i mean there's um in a canadian context um you know we have the canadian football league the cfl which you know is a a, a tiny league really but it's been around for over a hundred years um and it's really only popular these days in you know very small markets you know on the prairies in canada but they have you know gone hat in hand to the government asking for 150 million dollars in order to, to 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 continue as a going concern um and you know this issue came up with my mom obviously who lives in canada and she was obviously very outraged uh you know that that the government would consider giving that much money to a football league um over people that that, that are really suffering but but i mean even in that even with the canadian football league it it looks bad at first blush but when you start talking about that league in particular, um, you know, the players are not paid a lot in that league. It's not like the NFL or the NBA. Uh, a lot of them have second jobs. Uh, and then you look at, you know, the stadium staff and the ticket sellers and all of the industries that are supported by the CFL. And if it's let to die, what would happen to those jobs too? And this is not an argument to say, let's keep the CFL around. Uh, I mean, I haven't watched it in over a decade probably. Um, but but it, it, these are the things that, that we have to consider. It's often not as easy as just looking at the headline and saying, oh, you know, it's the CFL. It's not even that popular in big markets anymore. Let's just let it go. Uh, it, it, you know, more goes than, than just the, the football itself. Yeah, exactly, right? And I mean, you've got to look at how many, how many jobs does this particular industry employ? People working at the stadiums, people you know, manufacturing and selling merchandise. It's never as simple as you bail out bail out the league. It's always more complicated than that. And, you know, often these arguments become very, very politicized when they really should just be very straightforward economic arguments. Okay, Ewan, on the uh, on the Victoria's Secret case, I mean, where do we stand now then? What, what's the next step uh, in, in this case? Well, um, I guess we we follow and we we see where the action goes in in terms of in terms of court proceedings. I'm not sure what stage of the litigation they're currently at, um, but I'll certainly follow it and hopefully can can provide uh, an update as we go along to see see where this lands. I'm very very interested to see what happens. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, this week on the PR section, you and I want to tackle kind of a big subject. And I think it's one that you might have feelings about. I think our listeners may have feelings about, even if they're not familiar with the subject matter that closely. Uh, and, and it has to do with China. Um, and I know that the listeners of this podcast are going to have various levels of knowledge of sort of contemporary China uh, and what it's doing. So I'm going to try and be as brief as I can here. Um, but years ago, uh, China had a leader named Deng Xiaoping, 
and he followed Mao, basically. And uh, he was famous. One of his famous quotes was, hide your strength, bide your time. And it was a message to, you know, China's leaders at the time and subsequent leaders of the country to basically be humble, um, you know, until, until you've gotten stronger. And it looks like that time has come where this statement is no longer being adhered to and China has become actually quite aggressive on the world scene. And this ties into PR because China, China has always struggled uh, communicating with the Western world. Uh, and it's not doing so well now either. Um, there's, I've always you know, said to people who ask me about China's you know, PR and its messaging, I've always said that actually you know, the country has done some good things. The Communist Party has done some good things. Um, we've talked about this many times, UN, you know, 500 million people plus lifted out of poverty. I mean, that's unheard of in, in other parts of the world. Obviously, there's rapid development around the country. You know, the, the, the airports and the train system and you know, everything in China is just world class. I mean, it's, it's so far ahead of, of you know, the United States or Canada in a lot of these areas. And obviously, there's a lot of industry-leading companies. You know, I, I work for one of them at Tencent, but you know, there's um, there's companies that are you know at the at the head of their field, uh, you know, globally. And so, and I, I think maybe the biggest plus for the Communist Party is just the quality of life. I mean, people now in China have have a lot of people have money, and you know, they're able to travel around the world, and um, the the quality of life is is quite high. Um, when China tries to make that case, it often does so in a in a very awkward way, and I think um, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think um, obviously there's a cultural difference. I mean, um, China is not as conversant or understanding of sort of how how Western people or just people outside of China in general sort of understand understand their messages, and so they can come across as quite quite harsh or quite um, out of touch. And I think the other the other aspect is just the fact it is it is truly an authoritarian government. And so it's not in a in a situation where it regularly takes questions from reporters or or things like that. I mean, it's it's very the, the information flow is quite strictly controlled in China and even more strictly controlled now uh, than it was previously. Can I just jump in for a sec? I mean, you know, you mentioned the world class transportation and infrastructure and, uh, you know, I. I I can appreciate at face value, it, it certainly looks like that. But I mean, I, I know at least anecdotally some of my experience in um, using some of that world-class transportation and infrastructure in, in mainland China is that once you sort of peel back the, you know, that, that initial sheen, you realize that a lot of stuff is sort of done on the cheap. Um, there isn't really that that quality that you might see elsewhere, presumably because the work was done on, on such an aggressive timeline. Um, but I mean, you know, isn't that a fair criticism, Cam, that that some of that world-class infrastructure isn't exactly world-class? Well, I think, uh, I think you make a good point, and I, you know, I've seen the same as you. I think in general, I, I would stand by that statement. I think if you, I mean, I've spent enough time there recently that um, in general, you know, the airports are, are, are great to go through for the most part. Um, I mean, the train system, when you can get from Hong Kong to Beijing in eight hours, um, I mean, that's a, that's a three and a half hour flight. Uh, you know, I, it really, truly is impressive. Is it perfect? No. And I think you're absolutely right. I think 
you know, it's, it's always been, been said that China's pretty good on the hardware and not so good at the software, you know, meaning things like service industries or sort of, you know, moving people around a big facility, signage, like all of these sorts of things are, are a perennial headache, you know, in a lot of these, these um, you know, airports or train stations and things like that. And, and I do take your point on the quality as well. A lot of this stuff is built very quickly. And so you can see that there's some, some, some quality concerns. But I think... Even, I mean, when I moved to China, I moved to Beijing in 2004, and I moved into what was a relatively new, just a few years old, uh, apartment complex. And you could already see cracks, you know, very large cracks inside my suite and just around the building in general. And, you know, there were leaks and things like that, which would, you know, never be tolerated uh, elsewhere. But, but you know, at the, in, in those years, China was moving very quickly. And I think even today, you're not seeing that nearly as much as back in 2004. I think the, the expectation of quality has, has increased quite a lot. And that includes not just things like infrastructure, but also things like food, food quality and, and, and things like that. Um, so, I mean, it has come a long way. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 okay, I take the point. <laughs> I accept that. All right. I mean, the one thing that I did want to say, though, is, you know, accord, that Deng Xiaoping quote was really about just being humble. And that has clearly changed. In 2015, there was a film that debuted in China. It was called The Wolf Warrior. I'm not sure if you heard of this, Ewan, but basically no. it depicted a sort of Chinese style, like very muscular sort of superhero-esque um, characters defeating the United States in China and in Southeast Asia and in other places. And it's, it's a very kind of over-the-top patriotic film um, and obviously extremely popular in mainland China. And, you know, over the years since the, the Tiananmen Square crackdown in 1989, uh, you know, China has really turned on the patriotism and it's put a lot in its textbooks about how, you know, the West and other countries in the world have humiliated China for 200 years and now the Chinese people are standing up and they're not going to take it anymore. And so this this has been drilled into people for enough decades now um, that it is, it's common. I mean, oftentimes if you ask someone in China sort of what they think about a particular issue, you'll get almost an exact quote, a similar or the same quote from multiple people who don't even know each other um, because there are sort of lines taught to people to to address these things. But never had it affected diplomacy and we're seeing that now. So the current president of China is Xi Jinping, and uh, he, he's different. I mean, he's, uh, he's the son of a revolutionary. So his father was, you know, worked with Chairman Mao and was part of the, part of the revolution in China in 1949. And Xi Jinping is, is very, he's a, he's a tough guy, and he thinks it's time for China to flex its muscles. And he indicated uh, a few years ago that he wanted his, his diplomats to be more aggressive. And now we're seeing the result of that. So you and I think, you know, last year, I believe uh, the ambassador to Canada, Lou Chaillet, uh, he was very critical in his press conferences in Canada and uh, especially over the Meng Wanzhou, uh, Huawei sort of stuff. Do you recall that? Yeah, I mean, vaguely. Um, and I, I certainly recall the, 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 uh, the blow up, the tussle that sort of ensued where China was obviously pretty upset about the whole thing. Yeah, and he was very aggressive at that time, just over sort of, uh, you know, the questions journalists were asking him and, and that sort of thing. Um, he's actually now the ambassador to France, and um, he, he wrote an article uh, on the embassy website saying that French uh, nursing home workers had abandoned their jobs and, quote, allowing residents to die of hunger and illness, uh, end quote. 
now there was no evidence to support this. And obviously, you know, the French uh, um, brought the ambassador in to sort of give him a dressing down as a result of this. This is one example. There's actually been several examples around Europe where, where China has either posted things on Twitter or said things or written things that have been, you know, quite aggressive. But I think the star of this show, I'm getting to my point here in a roundabout way, is, is a man named Zhao Lijian. And uh, he is a spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry. And he has been particularly incendiary on Twitter, ironically, which is not even available in China, uh, but in his criticism of the United States. Now, I'm going to play a quick clip here. Uh, Zhao Lijian tweeted this on March 12th, and it comes from a House Oversight Committee hearing. Uh, in the United States, where the Center for Disease Control Director Robert Redfield was being questioned about the coronavirus and the outbreak. Um, this is one clip of that hearing, but it's one that Jolly Jan really wanted people to hear. I think people in China mainly, but also people uh, outside of China. So what you're going to hear is a, um, a, a committee member asking questions of Director Robert Redfield. The University of Washington has developed their own tests. Were those test kits available last Friday? Yes, sir. Thank you. And without test kits, is it possible that those that have been uh, susceptible to influenza might have been miscategorized as to what they actually had, that it's quite possible that they actually had uh, COVID-19? The standard practice is the first thing you do is test for influenza. So if they had influenza, they would be positive for... But only if they were tested. So if they weren't tested, we don't know what they had. Correct. Okay. And if somebody dies from influenza, are we doing post-mortem testing to see whether it was influenza or whether it was COVID-19? There is a surveillance system of death from pneumonia that the CDC has. It's not in every city, every state, every hospital. So we could have people in the United States dying for what appears to be influenza when, in fact, it could be the coronavirus or COVID-19. Some cases have been actually diagnosed that way in the United States today. Thank you. Okay, now, uh, I mean, that was right in the middle of a discussion. But the point being made was that people in the U.S. who had passed away in February, March, maybe even January, that they could have died of COVID-19 without doctors being aware of it. So the questions, you know, we're getting to that point. And, and the director, Robert Redfield, had, had said that, yes, that was the case in, in, in a couple of people who had passed away. So the, the Chinese foreign minister, Zhao Lijian, really jumped on this, and he wrote on Twitter, these are his words now, when did patient zero begin in U.S.? How many people are infected? What are the names of the hospitals? It might be the U.S. Army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. Be transparent. Make public your data. The U.S. owe us an explanation. This naturally... Go ahead, Yun. Wow. Well, just... Yeah. Wow. Um, but also, I mean, what a what a brilliant strategic move when you know that the, 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 the bulk of your readership are going to be um, people in China. Well, I mean, in a way, they're in a way they are, in a way they're not. I mean, literally, Chinese people don't have access to Twitter unless they use a VPN. But I mean, you know, when something like this is said, it's gonna it's gonna make its way back in, into the Chinese press. But I think the bigger issue here was it was it was a shock to the world in some ways that 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 this isn't just a you know a conspiracy theorist uh, you know trolling on Twitter that this is a foreign ministry for for the government for the central government. Um, in Beijing. And his argument was that the military world games were held in Wuhan 
in September, October of 2019. And a, a number of military, um, military members were there for these games. And he was spreading a bit of a conspiracy theory that maybe the U.S. actually brought this, this virus with them. So after that tweet, he actually tweeted several, but here's another that he sent out after that. And this is pertaining to an article that he found. These are his words. This article is very much important to teach to each and every one of us. Please read and retweet it. COVID-19, further evidence that the virus originated in the U.S., and he tweeted actually a Canadian kind of conspiracy website where that article appeared. He continued to retweet uh, mentions of this article, uh, you know, over subsequent tweets. Um, so he's been extremely outspoken um, to the point where, I mean, a lot of what he has said has been praised uh, within China because you and you're aware of this too. There's a, there is that large sort of nationalist sentiment going on in China and a feeling that, you know, they do want to sort of fight back against, you know, criticism of the country. Yeah. But I mean, effectively what they're doing is they're, they're just creating a, a fiction, right? I mean, they're creating a, a completely separate narrative um, apart from really the, the facts from, from what actually occurred because it, it, it suits the interests of, of the government domestically, right? And who else does that? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know what you're hinting at, but I'll let you tell me. Well, I think we can, we can stew on that for a while. Uh, right. The interesting thing was Tsui uh, Tiankai, who has been a diplomat for a very long time uh, in China, and he outranks actually Zhao Lijian. Uh, he's, he's now the ambassador to the United States. Um, after those comments by Zhao Lijian, he actually went on uh, a television interview. Actually, he spoke, um, this is from Axios. Uh, I'm gonna let you have a, have a listen to what he said because the reporter asked him right away about these remarks by Zhao Lijian and do they, do they represent the official view of the Chinese government? Uh, here's what he had to say. I think that these questions, of course, we have to find, eventually we must have a, a, an answer to where the virus originally came. But this, this is a job for the scientists to do, right. not for diplomats, not for journalists to speculate. Because such speculation will help nobody. It's very harmful. So why not let our scientists do their own professional job and give us some answer eventually? After those remarks, there were several articles saying that there was a, a division within China's foreign ministry and even within the government just about how they wanted um, to communicate internationally. Um, and that, that division, if it exists, I mean, there are some that say that, you know, this is sort of uh, throwing out a trial balloon on two different methods to see which is, which is more um, successful. But they're also kind of for two different audiences, as you kind of brought up, Ewan. You know, for one, you know, Jolly Jan is sort of directing the anger uh, outward, but it is for the uh, edification of the, the Chiinese people back home, whereas you know Tsui Tian Kai's comments, he was trying to basically calm some of the nervousness uh, around China's uh, aggression. I did want to just mention a, a couple more things because this is a, it's a very sustained kind of uh, situation. So uh, some other comments, People's Daily, which is which is um, you know an official paper in China, it's not really read by regular people, but it, it still contains the government's views. Um, there was uh, a column in there that attacked the Americans for blaming China for the outbreak. Quote, as the coronavirus spreads in America, some on the U.S. side are still trying their best to do things that are absolutely bullying and extremely absurd. This is truly evil and pathological smearing. Another 
commentary uh, said that the coronavirus could have started to spread earlier than in China, and the American politicians are now smearing China, quote, out of their dark mindsets. Another one, foreign ministry spokesman, this is Gong Shuang, uh, who said the U.S. is spreading disinformation about China, and he sort of outlined the times and dates when China was engaging the U.S. and when there were U.S. scientists on the ground in China, uh, but, but also said, and I quote, now the U.S. side tries to blame others. This is both unethical and irresponsible. Um, I want to mention one more, uh, Ewan, sort of actually a couple more before you, uh, before you jump in. And, and one is, uh, you know, another, uh, this is an interview from CGTN. CGTN is sort of their, their BBC. It's China's international uh, news channel. And it also mentioned those military world games in Wuhan. And it said, why did the U.S. team win zero gold medals? Did that even look like a reasonable record for the world's leading military power? Did your government do it on purpose? End quote. Was anyone among the 369 participants ever misdiagnosed with influenza? Was it possible they were carriers of the novel coronavirus? The best thing for the U.S. now is to stop burying its head in the sand and give the 369 people PCT tests to see if they are infected. Lastly, this, de this debate continued. Uh, the Hunan University of Technology's Institute of Public Policy WeChat group, so they often publish articles on there, and they pushed an article out uh, titled, Chinese Diplomatic Discourse Shouldn't Be Self-Defeating. And um, it was making the argument sort of more on the side of Tui Tian Kai, which is just, you know, let's stand back a little bit and not, not inflict, you know, wounds or damage on ourselves. But within there was the quote, let America degenerate on its own, end quote. So China is becoming very, very more aggressive. And uh, it's a bit of a surprise. And you and I don't know what you think about it, but I see it as somewhat concerning. Well, yeah, it's definitely concerning. I mean, I think I think it's brilliant strategy. And, you know, it's brilliant strategy, particularly because you know, or China knows that it has the luxury of controlling the message. So it can facilitate and push whatever message or rhetoric it would like and can ensure in the process that it blocks out any sort of countervailing view of, of the issue. So, I mean, look, is it concerning? Absolutely. But, um, you know, from a, from a public relations perspective, it's, it, it also looks like a stroke of genius. The bigger picture, really, and I think this is something people in the West don't fully understand. I mean, China's government's legitimacy is not from the ballot box the way, you know, we appoint or elect our governments. Um, but it is from things like the economy and quality of life and, you know, advancement, jobs, and, you know, things like standing up for China. I mean, there's a, uh, there, there is a belief that, for example, if, if the United States, you know, if there was ever war with Taiwan uh, or, or Taiwan ever declared independence, that China would have to go in and invade, not because the government thinks it's the right thing to do, but because the people would not tolerate a government that wouldn't do it. And, you know, the Chinese Communist Party would be at risk of its, from its own people at that point, because, you know, by and large, there are large swaths of the Chinese population that are quite nationalistic. And, um, and the government is often responding uh, to that kind, of, that kind of emotion. Well, it sounds like an interesting chicken and the egg scenario. Is, is, it, is the government responding to the public or is the public responding to the government? 
Well, I mean, clearly the, the textbook's filled with sort of nationalist kind of commentary and uh, a very nationalist view of history um, plays into that. And I think, I think it's, you know, there, there are times when people feel that this has really gone too far. I mean, um, we were working at the Nanfeng, you, and, you know, a few years ago when there was the, the protests against Japan that resulted in some people getting really badly hurt. And China eventually had to kind of kind of bring those to a close because it was sort of getting out of hand. So it is a delicate balance. I mean, the Chinese government does try and and and, and make sure that people do are able to express themselves uh, at least a certain amount, uh, but then tries to sort of rein it in when it's no longer in the in the country's interest to have that kind of that kind of anger and emotion out there. Hmm. Cleverly so. Yes. Anyway, from a PR angle, I mean, you're, you're right, Ewan. I think it, it does well. It, it plays to the local audience very well, but it is very damaging, I think, for, for, for China's uh, image in the world. And there have been a few, um, I, I wish I had them on hand, but I've read recently just a few uh, polls sort of of people worldwide about China's image, and it, it has decreased substantially uh, since the coronavirus. I think the virus had a big part to do with that, but then I think you know China's reaction to it um, has also rubbed some people the wrong way. So um, I've always said, and going back years, I, I always thought it'd be fascinating to be a PR guy for the Chinese government because you know, I, I do think they often shoot themselves in the foot. I think they sometimes have very good messages or they've got something that's very uh, very interesting or could be explained in a way that is understood by, by, by other countries. But it, it's shocking to some degree. They either, they either don't have those people on staff or, or they, there just aren't those people, period. Um, and uh, I, I do think it's too bad because China has a lot that it needs to be held responsible for. I mean, there's a lot of awful things happening at the moment. You know, the, the uh, concentration camps in Xinjiang, you know, what's happened in Tibet over the decades, even what's happening here in Hong Kong now. Uh, the protests reignited Ewan this, this weekend. Um, so, so China does need to answer for those things, but it does make itself appear even worse by the way they manage their international communications and and uh you know it it, it doesn't help anyone it, it literally hurts the country so you know it's too bad to see that happen well but that that's kind of my question i mean how much does that hurt the country domestically i don't think it hurts the country directly domestically but i think when you're i mean china does not have many friends you know even at the diplomatic level i mean clearly it's friends with North Korea, so there's that. Uh, Cambodia and Laos are, are, are sort of uh, in China's sphere of influence and rely on China a lot. Um, you know, but outside of those, those countries, there's not many. I mean, China's heavily invested in, in Africa, uh, you know, but there's relations there are very strained now. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's fine, I think, in the status quo, but I think when you run into something like the coronavirus or if there is some sort of military conflict in the future or if there are sanctions, I mean, China is, is very close to being quite isolated, actually. And you and I have talked about it before. When the dust settles from this coronavirus, when the economies are back to normal, um, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on China to answer for this. Uh, because it did. I mean, the facts that we have now are that this did originate in China, and it looks like it came from, you know, that that wet market in Wuhan or nearby or related to sort of the exotic animal trade. And these are things that are not new. These are things that have been around for a very long time. They've resulted in other viruses, and there have been warnings about them for a very long time. So this this is not totally out of the blue, this sort of thing. So I think there's going to be a lot of anger, and China will be will be under a lot of pressure. Yeah, I, I mean, look, undoubtedly, this is there's there's going to be a reckoning uh, to what extent 
remains to be seen, but there will be some some political economic consequence to this. Yeah, and I should say this this attitude, this sort of uh, truculent approach to communications, it does follow from the president of the country, Xi Jinping. And I know people don't follow Chinese politics closely, um, but Xi Jinping is, is he is a strong man in the classic strongman uh, kind of stereotype. And he's, uh, he's determined to be much more aggressive with neighbors f- to promote China's interests, you know, to, to really stand up for the country and take what it thinks belongs to it. And so I think as long as he's in power, and right now he's in power for life, because uh, the, 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 the term limit was removed just a couple of years ago uh, under Xi Jinping. So it could be, there could be some dicey days ahead, not for the United States, just the United States, but uh, especially for China's neighbors like Taiwan and, and here in Hong Kong. All right. So... And we could dive in. There's so many angles to this that we could talk about. So we, we, we don't want to go at length because it is China. And we know that not everyone is interested in what's happening in China. Uh, but from a PR perspective, uh, it is something that we, we wanted to raise. And so when you're looking at the news, when you're hearing things happen about China, note the tone uh, of what's being said. And a lot of, I just want to remind our listeners again, uh, we've mentioned a lot of sort of news articles and, uh, and quotes and things like that in this show. And they will be in our show notes, so please check there uh, because there's more reading if you're if you're interested in it. Um, before we go, we last week we introduced sort of a new sort of just recommended reads or a recommended uh, section, uh, just a couple things you might want to take in or that we took in that we thought were quite interesting. Um, and you and I, I know you have seen this. I haven't yet, but it's on my recommended list just because all of the reading I've done around it. And that is The Last Dance. It's a, it's a documentary by Jason Herr, I believe. And uh, it is about the Chicago Bulls. If you're an NBA fan, it's about the Chicago Bulls. Last season with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Phil Jackson, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that year, they, the documentary crew um, actually had access even inside of the, the, the dressing room of the Chicago Bulls back then. And that footage has kind of been sitting sitting on the side for years and years since then until there was kind of the right director to take a look at it. Uh, and that has been released during the, the coronavirus outbreak and it's getting a lot of attention. What did you think, Ewan? Well, it's funny. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a big NBA fan. I don't follow the NBA. Uh, I've, I've never been a, a big basketball guy, but I have found this series to be absolutely riveting. It really does an incredible job in terms of getting you to relate to the players. So, of course, everybody has these preconceived notions about Michael Jordan and they know who he is and the shoes and the brand. Uh, but to actually see the interviews and the way they sort of splice in the chronology is really, really well done. So you spend some some present day interview time with Michael Jordan and then we sort of jump back to when he was he was a kid. But they don't belabor those points. I find, you know, a lot of documentaries, they sort of move in this chronological order of, well, this is what so-and-so was like as a child and this is how they ended up becoming who they were. This documentary is really effective at spending just enough time in the past to give you that context of, I was going to say the character, but of course it's a documentary. They're not, they're not characters, but to give you just enough context that you feel like you can relate even to these NBA superstars, you feel like you can relate to them on some level. And so you you get invested 
and you know, I got invested in Michael Jordan. Dennis Rodman's backstory is fascinating. Scottie Pippen's backstory is fascinating. And so even if you aren't remotely interested in sport or basketball, I would highly, highly, highly recommend taking the time to sit down with this series. It's really been fantastic. Yeah, you know, I went through a few years where I was an NBA fan, and I did follow the league, and that was back in the days of the Vancouver Grizzlies. Uh, our listeners might not even be aware of them, but Vancouver did have a team for, for six years. Um, and in those days, I, I did follow the Grizzlies closely, but since then, I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched the NBA that closely, but I, I was aware. I mean, you and you and you and I, <laughs> you and you and I, were in uh, high school when when the Bulls were were winning all their championships, and and I mean, I remember it clearly from then, and I remember the hype around the team, and I remember Dennis Rodman and all the news that surrounded him because he was, you know, obviously he was known as the Worm, and he was partying all over the place, dating Madonna and Carmen Electra and all these sort of '90s people. Um, so there's a lot there, and I, and I agree with you. I have not even seen this yet, but I've I've heard enough, and I've heard the uh, the director interviewed uh, that I can't wait to do it. It's available in different places depending on which country you're in. So I know in Canada it's on Netflix. In the U.S. it's it's either I think it's ESPN, um, and in Hong Kong I can't even I don't know, HBO for some reason I think, but that seems odd to me. One one other thing I wanted to to mention from this quickly is. Uh, and this is an article that I, I just saw today, but apparently in this documentary, it does, there, there's a part of it that takes a look at the, uh, the U, Team USA Olympic practice session from 1992. And it's, 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 uh, it was in Monte Carlo and it was the team practicing, but it got serious because Magic Johnson was on one side and they were going to have kind of a scrimmage and Michael Jordan was on the other. And so they thought they would play a game and it became a legit game like four 15 minute quarters you know there was a ref there was no coach on either side and apparently it's one of the most intense games ever and uh, michael jordan says that's the best game he ever played in and uh, it was a practice it was not televised and only recently i guess some footage of this has become available and in that in that game there were 10 hall of famers on the court 10 all first ballot Hall of Famers. And so, you know, there's some, I will link to this in the show notes. There's some some clips of Magic Johnson and, and Jordan that are just incredible, incredible because, you know, they were saying that this was when the torch was passed from Magic to Michael. Uh, and it's uh, it's pretty incredible and so cool to think that, that, that this game full of emotion was in a practice. Well, I wonder how they picked teams. Yeah. On, I, how did they decide who's on what team? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this is another thing. I, th I mean, even something like this, it's just, uh, I think... You know, I follow I follow the NHL pretty well, and I do follow sports in general, actually, decently well. Um, but but it's these kinds of moments when you when you are seeing an emerging player take over as the best. It is, I mean, sport definitely has that. It's it's compelling, uh, and it does reflect real life in a lot of ways. Yeah, it does. And I think these, you know, these programs, what's what's really cool about them, again, is that even if you don't have an investment in the particular game or the particular sport there's something there that you can kind of latch on to. And, you know, that again, going back to the last dance, that's really the brilliance of that, of that documentary is that any, any individual could sit down and would be able to relate to some aspect of, of the documentary. It's really just fantastic. Right. Um, the last thing I wanted to recommend, I'll be quick. It's uh, it's a new publication, relatively new online publication. It's called The Wire China. So if you're if you're a China nerd or you're really interested in what's happening in China, um, this is definitely a site to take a look at. 
uh, it was actually launched in part by uh, a former New York Times reporter, David Barboza, um, who actually my, my wife had worked for and who I know quite well. Uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his work with the New York Times, and he's one of the founding members of this, uh, this startup. Uh, but they really take a look like right now they've got you know, a big dive into Luckin Coffee, which is the, the Chinese Starbucks kind of clone that uh, just collapsed on, on, the, on the New York stock market. Uh, and, you know, look at China's retail market. And again, this is a maybe a harbinger for the West. You know, retail is not bouncing back. Every, you know, everything's open again in China, but you're not seeing a return to the way it was uh, before. And also look at Huawei and 5G. Uh, you know, 5G was turned on in Hong Kong on April 1st. Um, so it's it's up and running and you can now use the 5G network. I can't wait to do that. I'm really excited about it. Um, but a look at just, you know, Huawei's lead uh, in that area. So, um, yeah, The Last Dance and The Wire China, a new publication. And again, I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. Anything else you want to add, Ewan, before we sign off? We've got another long show here, uh, but I think it kept a good pace. No, I think we've, we've covered some some really great, great topics this week and some really useful information. Yes, for sure. Okay. Um, as always, if you liked the show, please tell a friend. It really means a lot to us if you do that. Um, and you can follow us on social media at PR Law Podcast, at PR Law Podcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And so there you'll get some highlight clips each week uh, the sh- when the, you get announced when the show comes out uh, and a few other goodies um, that we post on there from time to time. Also, we, we do want to take your questions. We're, we're a new show, um, so we're, we're still, you know, sort of working with our audience and, and growing the audience. We're really excited by, by the number of people that have subscribed to the show already. Um, but we do plan to, to launch a, you know, question and answer session. So if you've got questions about, about legal employment law kind of related issues or, or, or PR and corporate communications, uh, definitely tag us on social media. And so it's hashtag PR law pod. Hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Thank you so much for listening to the PR and Law Podcast, and we'll see you next week. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W podcast. Thanks for your support.